Thanks for listening to A Little More Conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara-Byrne. Tonight, a third of Canadians didn't visit the dentist last year as high costs and the affordability crisis is keeping more and more people away. Will a new national dental program help fix that? Meantime, new Canadian research shows that a third of people around the world may be addicted to their smartphones, and it is more prevalent in some groups than others. We find out who will dial up the details for you. A BC company is among those listed in Time Magazine's Inventions of 2023 for its Phoenix Robots, the latest model of the robot created by Sanctuary AI and powered by Carbon, a software platform that uses sophisticated AI to let the machine think and act like a real human worker. Is our robot future already upon us? We find out. But first, for years, he crisscrossed the country, taking part in every kind of festival and fair you can imagine meeting big stars, politicians, prime ministers, and lots of everyday people. Rick Mercer looks back on the highlights from all those years in his new memoir called The Road Years, and he joins me for a trip down memory lane. There are a few Canadians who... uh, put a smile on people's faces as much as my next guest. He spent the better part of 15 years on the Rick Mercer Report crisscrossing this country. I've been to a lot of places thanks to work and just living in many different cities in the country, election tours, but it's nothing compared to what Rick Mercer has seen over the years. Visiting every kind of fair and event you can imagine in every corner of the country, he spent time with every living prime minister, chatted with all manner of Canadian celebrities and politicians, Dog sledding, chainsaw carving, hanging from a harness, skinny dipping with Bob Ray, getting a hug and a bedtime story from Stephen Harper, tobogganing with Getty Lee, talking to Olympians, Paralympians. The list goes on and on and on. But Rick Mercer's mission was always about the same. From the famous to the thousands upon thousands of Canadians from all walks of life he's spoken to over the years, he was always kind of trying to figure out in some way, shape or form what it means to be Canadian. Here's one one of his many attempts at explaining. Welcome to everything you wanted to know about Canada, but were afraid to ask. Canada, we are a large northern landmass, and by and large, we have enjoyed 141 years of peace, order, and good government. And our official summer sport is lacrosse. Basically, that's all you need to know. Oh, one other salient fact. According to a recent Dominion Institute poll, a majority of Canadians have no idea how... Parliament works, which is fine. We're all very busy people. We have lives to lead, families to raise. We're on hold with Rogers. And to be honest, it is perfectly understandable to enjoy something without knowing how it works. Rick Mercer and the Rick Mercer Report there, of course, over 15 years or 14 years, he just saw he saw just about everything. It's hard to put it all down into one book, but he has. He's put um, his greatest hit, so to speak, into a new memoir that he calls The Road Years. It's a continuing from his uh, follow-up, really, from his 2021 book called Talking to Canadians. And Rick Mercer joins me now. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's, you know, thinking back to all the times I watched the show and then I read through the book, and I, I just would have found it so difficult to come up with, you know, a synopsis of my greatest, of the greatest hits. Uh, how did you go about doing that? There's some, there's some great ones in there. There's probably a few that I didn't see, but wow, it's quite the, quite the, quite the journey. Well, I was always on the road with uh, three other people, mm-hmm. and they were on the road with me forever. So when I sat down to write the book, I said, well, what I'll do is I'll just ask everyone, what are the 15 or 20 things you think I should write about in all the years we were out there up the road? And I thought, well, there'll be some. 
crossover and then they'll just cancel each other out and I'll have the list. But everyone came up with a different list. So that just compounded the problem. But I wanted to create a healthy list of a health, healthy cross section of stories that involve what we call host and peril, where I'd be out there on the road, but they'd be would involve jumping out of an airplane or entering a demolition derby or taking part in the train of death or, or people love to see me very uncomfortable. Uh, They love to see me cold. They love to see me wet, all of that business. And then I wanted to talk and feature segments that involve prime ministers and famous rock stars, but also people who lived in the oil patch or worked as a nurse or a paramedic or a fisherman or a farmer, that kind of thing. So I wanted a big cross section. And I also wanted to include segments uh, about meeting people, groups of people that I found really inspiring. Yeah, one of the things that uh, that really stands out, I mean, there is always that, I imagine the reason that the four of you came up with different things is that from each person's perspective, some things would have really stood out. I imagine in your case, you know, the bee beard probably wasn't one of your favorite ones, but for anyone watching, for your cameraman, that would have been an amazing one because it looks so great, yeah. right? Well, yeah, and it was terrifying. And, and it's kind of, it's it's a weird thing that a lot of entertainers have. It's not just me. I was, I have never been, nor am I now, an adrenaline junkie. I just, I'm not that person. Left to my own devices, I'm just happy sitting on the dock. I don't need to be pulled around the the lake on a inflatable behind a speedboat. I, I'm not that guy. So I would, I don't want to jump out of an airplane. I, I never wanted to take part in a demolition derby, let alone have a queen bee tied to my neck and then 10,000 bees released on my face. That's not something I would do. But when the green light comes on, something kicks in. I was tasered for the show. I write about that because it never went on television. And and I thought, well, this is going too far. Uh, Tom Stanley, my producer, he said, you know, this SWAT team, you're going to shoot with them. And he said, you know, they offered to taser you. And I said, I am not being tasered on television. Forget it. And he said, I don't blame you. No one's ever done it. And then, of course, that was like a red flag to a bull. I was like, no one's ever done it? Like, really? No one? And next thing you know, I'm getting tasered. So I don't know why I'm like that. And Jan Arden is the same way. Like Jan Arden's legitimately terrified of heights. I, as Jan, as a friend, I've been in an elevator with her, like those glass wall elevators. And we're like four or five stories up and she gets very nervous. So when I suggest that I dangle her off the CN Tower, I thought there's no way she's going to say yes. And then when she said yes, I thought once we get near the doorway and she looks out, There's no way. But yet the green light was on and somehow she found the internal fortitude and she did it. I remember as a reporter back when police services were sort of offering to taser reporters and they were very they were far too happy to offer it, by the way. I always thought there was a real twinkle in the eyes of the officers when you showed up to be tasered. I I wasn't the guy to get chosen. I always say like being tasered wasn't on my bucket list, but the cop who tasered me, it was on his. (laughs) Absolutely. You mentioned something that I found really interesting is that, you know, most of us get to go through life avoiding our phobias. I mean, I don't much love heights. I don't have to confront heights. Right. But as a reporter, you do. And in your position, you did. So you have to kind of confront some of those fears. And maybe when the green light comes on, it's sort of a way of overcoming what you might think is an irrational fear or something. Yeah. Well, maybe there is that. I kind of equate it to like with Jan anyway, when they have those reports of, you know, a a, a young woman lifting a Toyota up. (laughs) to rescue her child like some 
weird superhuman strength, except in show business, it's for selfish reasons, not selfless reasons. But yeah, if you had, if you were a member of my crew or you were me, doesn't matter what your phobias were, eventually you absolutely had to face them. And even obscure ones, like a fear of snakes. Most people can go through their life avoiding snakes. My God, it seemed like every three months someone wanted to throw a snake at me. It was weird that way. Or maybe you'd have a phobia of cabinet ministers or prime ministers, and that would be the same thing. They were always there as well. The B1 is great. The B1 with the crew, with one member of your crew. Just when you start to get the sense that something might be a little bit wrong. But it it provided... It provided the human side of it. If it all had been going according to script, it would have lost some of the magic that that ended up happening on screen, right? Because that atmosphere that was created kind of came right onto the camera, I found. We never had much of a script. We always had an idea, and I always had notes and lines in my pocket. But either you just don't know what's going to happen when you get into those situations. And we didn't have a lot of uh, pre-production like we didn't have time for anyone to go out and visit locations in advance. Yeah, scouting. <laughs> no. no, none of that. I mean, my God, we never scouted anything, maybe a handful of times. Uh, everything was done on the phone. And, you know, sometimes people get excited and they'd oversell something or or it wouldn't be exactly as advertised when you showed up. Uh, and you just had to you had to make do. You had to fly by the seat of your pants. I mean, Jan Erden, the the first time she was on the show, she wasn't scheduled to be on the show that week. Another shoot died, and I was desperate to find anything, anything at all to shoot in Calgary that week. And I thought, well, maybe someone can show me around. Who can we get? And my first choice was Jason Kenney, who was then a cabinet minister. And Jason said no. And then it was, well, what about Jan Arden? And I was a big fan of her music, but I thought, songs are so sad. You know, she, <laughs> True. She's, she's a probably a depressive. She's probably like some goth lady who doesn't <laughs> say much. I don't know if she's going to be much of a tour guide. And of course, she turned out to be a tremendous tour guide and a great comic foil, and she became a regular. Uh, one of the things I found great, well, first of all, one of, the, one of the things was just how this idea that there's a festival going on in every community somewhere every week sound, on paper sounds great, but I've been to a lot of those festivals and they can be hard to make as, I mean, there's always something interesting if you go looking for it, I guess is what it boils down to, right? If you open your mind and go in with curiosity. I think it always has to be about the people, and that might be cliche, but you're right. You might roll into some of these festivals, and the big attraction is uh, not that different from when I was growing up, and we didn't have a Canada's Wonderland, but we would have these these kind of touring amusements, death-defying amusements, you know, and they would have, like, the small Ferris wheel and the tilt-a-whirl, those types of things, and and you're right. You can't really roll in with a camera crew and go like, "Okay, we're going to blow people's minds now because they've got a tilt a whirl and a <laughs> and a teacup ride that they pull behind trailers." But it's all about the people that you meet there. And I I don't have a lot of faith in all my skills, but I I've always felt that uh, uh, you know I can get a story out of someone, and I am the guy. I am loath to admit that if I'm on a long haul flight, I just assume someone sit next to me on the plane who's chatty, then have an empty seat. And quite often, and I don't want to talk about myself, I have no interest in that, but quite often I I come away going, my God, you're not going to believe the woman I sat next to on the plane. And then you find this story and and you can make it work. 
I mean, everyone's got a story, right? And I think also it's all about making people feel relaxed and comfortable enough, especially if you're in a situation where someone's never been on TV before, probably never going to be on TV again, maybe never even saw a TV camera up close, and you you make them feel confident enough and you put them on TV in a way that they look like a rock star. Like that's, I, I got a huge thrill out of that. I used to, I just loved it when it, when it worked. Yeah. And because for them, it's especially, I mean, I know uh, before long people were inviting you and it's such a big deal for you to show up with, even with your smaller, with your crew, just the four of you for them, it, it's, it's, a you know, it's, it's one of those moments they'll always remember and it, it matters so much how, how you come across and how, what the final product looks like, because it's so much as you get to do another episode next week or the week after, but for them, it's once in a lifetime kind of stuff. Right. And it's, I guess you can never forget that that's part of the responsibility to some extent, the beauty and the responsibility. Well, we had a, we had a philosophy that we were only celebrating and comedy is not always about celebrating a lot of great comedies about tearing down and making fun of, but we just decided we're never making fun of anyone, quite frankly, if we're going to Sudbury, we're celebrating Sudbury. And if we're going to visit some festival, we're going to talk about this festival like it's the best thing going. And we're going to show this town and show why these people love to live there. Um, we only celebrate it. And I think that that came across in the show. But as a result, people trusted us. There was never any fear of like, oh, here we are, you know, a bunch of employees that work on an assembly line sorting garbage at a recycling facility. There was no no fear that like, oh, he's going to come in here and make fun of the fact that we handle garbage all day. No, I'm coming in and talking about this innovation and in recycling that's happening here and and meeting all the employees and why they like working there and what they're doing. And 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 I think they just inherently knew that they would be taken care of. And that gave me great access. I mean, it certainly worked in my favor. That gave me great access. And nobody was suspicious of our motives. Because they just by osmosis knew from watching the show that, yeah, that wasn't the kind of show it was. Yeah. What do you make of, of, of I mean, it, it is so easy sometimes that you see it cross the line often punching down, right? I mean, it, and you see it, it and, and some people like it. I, I've never liked it. I think that's one of the things that, and it was quite Canadian. And I hate to say this this way, but to me, it represents something quite Canadian to treat everything that way. There's always, there was always humor there. It just was never, oh, sure. it we was never mean. Yeah. Way. Yeah. And, it, and it doesn't come natural to, I mean, my goodness, so many comics that I worked with over the years, it was always a learning curve because when you, if you get a laugh in grade three concerning the teacher, you don't get a laugh celebrating the teacher. No. <laughs> you get a laugh at the expense of the teacher. There's no that's the only way. And then you want a bigger laugh, go up the food chain to the principal. Then you're killing it. <laughs> uh, and that's the way all comedians learn. So when they came to work with me and we would say, no, 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 we don't we don't make fun of Thunder Bay. No, no, we don't do that here. Uh, they'd be like, what do you mean? We make fun of everything. I was like, well, we don't make fun of where we go on this show. And and again, I'm not saying that the world has to be like that or comedy has to be like that. Uh, and maybe it shouldn't. But it was fine for one half hour a week that we celebrated. And that was it. It was just always a celebration. And it was my show was so unapologetically Canadian. We wouldn't even license a piece of music unless it was Canadian. It was... Uh, and we just pretended when it came to the the, the politics and the uh, just jokes about and regular pop culture references, we just pretended the United States didn't exist. And I'm not saying that I'm not saying that, you know, that's the way you have to do it. But someone would say, oh, here's a Britney Spears joke. And I would be like, well, 
in our little universe, one half hour a week, she doesn't exist. <laughs> we can talk about the Guess Who or the Rush or the Tragically Hip or the Arkells or Sarah Harmer, but uh, that's we're not talking about any of them. And that was just the way we did it. Rick, you also got to meet some people. And one of the great things about any show is getting to meet some of your heroes, right? There's some great scenes about talking about the things you did with members of the band Rush. Uh, There's a great scene with Bruce Coburn. Uh, You made Robin Williams laugh. Like there were some really special moments in there. And and, and it must have been interesting to try to figure out which ones you you kept uh, over all the years. Yeah, because the show was never really about fame. We didn't chase famous people. They they certainly appeared on the show. We once we won an award here to just a humble brag. We won this award called the Rose Door, which is a very prestigious television award that nobody in Canada has ever heard of. But the reason why it's such an important award is uh, many 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 shows that have won this award in the world of comedy have been have the 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 format rights have been purchased by other countries around the world. And so it's considered a big deal if you win this thing. And sure enough, as predicted, when we won this thing, uh, a number of countries came looking to create their version of our show in their country. But they all became incredibly confused when they watched six episodes. They just said, "So, so one week you have a rock star, and the next week you have the biggest politician in the land. But then the next week you have a guy who harvests oysters and he's your big guest. And we were like, yes. And they're like, how can you have a show where one week it's the prime minister and the next week it's a guy who may harvests oysters. And we were like, well, that's the show. It works. Believe me. And they're like, and what's with these small towns you're going to? Uh, you seem to avoid big cities. And we're like, Oh no, we've got them in Canada. But just, I, I pretty much avoid them. And like, they just didn't get it, which is great. I, you know, I would have been nice if they got it. And there was a, German version, I suppose, but but uh, I got a kick out of their confusion with our format, seeing as it was such a popular format in this country. But there were certainly a big one for me was Neil Peart. I took drum lessons in grade seven and eight, so I could sound like Neil Peart of Rush, drummer. And I quickly realized, like all other mortal human beings, that was never going to happen. And so I gave up the drums, but I spent a lot of time when I was in grade seven and eight, pretending I was Neil Peart. And so the fact that Neil, who was a a notoriously private person who had given up media in all forms, he was still a rock star member of Rush, but he only appeared in public when he was playing drums in front of 100,000 people in Latin America somewhere. Um, He agreed to come on the show and he gave me drum lessons. And he got so into it that he had the the Rush drum kit brought in from Los Angeles, like the big touring gold, literal gold drum kit with that revolves and all that business. And he was very generous and very funny. And, and uh, uh, it, w- it was just great. And when I was writing that chapter, I like had a thought about it. I was like, God, it all happened so fast, but it dawned on me like all those hours I spent pretending I was him. And I was like, and then he gave me drum lessons. I had to go walk around the block and go, how did I get that lucky? What did I do to deserve that? And it's, uh, there's a bunch of those moments. The Neil one is great. The Neil one is great because we know that he'd suffered some some real tragedy in his life. And of course, he passed, uh, right? And, and, and so there was a bit of a, you know, there's a, a, a melancholy, sort of a bittersweet part of reading that. But but just his ability, the way he opened up with you, and, and he clearly enjoyed the experience of doing yeah. that with you. And isn't that and great? I, 
And I think that, and I don't know, I'm speculating because we were hardly close friends or anything like that. But I had George Shavalo on the show, the boxer, the great yeah. boxer, George Shavalo. And I, I looked at a bunch of major interviews that George Shavalo had done in his career. And like Neil Peart, George Shavalo had suffered tremendous loss in his family. He lost children to drug abuse. He lost his wife. Uh, just a bunch of tragedy. And I, I was going to have boxing lessons from him. But again, I was a bit nervous. I was like, my God, I watched these interviews with George Shavalo. They're heartbreaking. They're devastating. And then I got him. And he was this really funny guy, really self-deprecating, really a, just a funny, funny guy. And the thing is, I didn't mind the tragedy that was a big part of his life. Not that mining was bad, and he was happy to talk about it because he lost his children to drug abuse. But I think he, well, he told me after, he was so relieved that it was just an interview about his career that was fun, and he got to teach me boxing and make fun of me. And I think, uh, likewise with Neil, I think one of the reasons he probably stepped back from the public eye was he had such a, you know, such loss in his life that he just didn't want to be in a situation where he would be asked about that. And uh, I think he knew that that wasn't going to come up with me. That wasn't why we were there. We were there for a drum lesson. And it allowed him to be, show off as the funny guy that he was. It always reminded me watching your show that people love to tell their story. They just don't want to get caught out telling their story. And sometimes the problem right. with the way media works is that it becomes they're worried about getting saying the wrong thing and it becomes uncomfortable, whereas people just seem to relax uh, with you. And, and that's I mean, that's a great gift. I was never worried about saying the wrong thing for a couple of reasons. One, if I really realized I said the wrong thing, it wasn't live. I could it was my show. I could cut it out. But I remember shooting with Paralympians. We shot with so many Paralympians. And uh, this one guy said something and he referenced, he had no legs and he referenced, uh, he referenced the fact that he had no legs. And I said, uh, yeah, why don't you have legs anyway? Like, it was, did you always not have legs or did you lose them? What, what happened with the legs? And he had this very dark, funny story. And uh, he told me afterwards, he said, you know, I've done hundreds of interviews. I've been waiting for someone to ask me why I don't have any legs. And I guess people were so nervous about, like, can I ask him why he has no legs? Well, he's sitting right in front of you. He has no legs. He's a Paralympian. You know, it's it. that's part of the story. And, and I kind of it never dawned on me before. Oh, I guess, yeah, I should have been careful about that. But he was he was grateful. And so anytime I, I talked to Paralympians, and like I say, there were a lot of them over the years, I was never shy about asking those questions. And they were never shy about an answering. It, it was and also reading through your interviews with, with people who might be more familiar to everyone. I mean, certainly George Shavallo, Neil Pirdar, but uh, prime ministers as well. It was interesting how much uh, even in your ability to disarm them in some ways, how much they came across exactly as myself as a reporter would have seen them. Stephen Harper was deceptively funny and always was. Uh, Paul Martin was this kind of very stiff and yet you kind of wanted to like him, but he just couldn't let loose he couldn't let loose yeah. and of course Jacques Cretzia I was I was on a plane on a 13-hour plane ride with Jacques Cretzia once I mean he might as well just have gotten up and held and you know gotten a microphone and held court right he was that kind of Brian yeah. Mulroney too and you and that all comes across in your book as well I mean there are big personalities behind these people we sort of just paint as PM sure especially Stephen Harper's interesting like anyone who covered Stephen Harper when he was leader of the opposition uh they knew that he had this secret weapon because in those days, the parliamentary press gallery dinner was was a lot of fun. And he would show up and he would kill. 
he always gave the best speech. It was always the best written. Now, whether he wrote it or not, probably not, but always lots of good jokes that he could deliver. And he did impressions, impersonations. He did a killer Gretchen. And I know lots of people do Gretchen, but he did a really good Gretchen. He did a really good Brian Mulroney. Plus he did Deef and Baker and stuff. Like he actually was a study, you know, he could do impersonations. But of course, of course, as soon as he became prime minister, he refused, refused to ever appear at a press gallery dinner, which is interesting because any other politician who could do impersonations, you couldn't get him to stop. But he just never allowed anyone to see him like that ever again until like he had like, I don't know what was going on the week he agreed to do my show. And he revealed himself to be a guy who could tell a joke and could be self-deprecating, which nobody, nobody saw that coming. I mean, I planned on him coming across self-deprecating, but I really thought, I don't know if he got what it takes to do this. Whereas, you know, Justin Trudeau, although I never had him on the show as prime minister, because by the time he was prime minister, I was kind of tired of talking to prime ministers, nothing to do with him personally, but he would have a harder time being self-deprecating than I think most of them. So it's interesting to see behind. They all do weird things too, like, you know this too. You get around a prime minister, and the first thing they do is they drop like four f bombs immediately. <laughs> or something and they like do that. it, yeah, right. Yeah. And they do yeah. it just so they're saying, like, you know, ah, now it's just me and you, and I'm yeah. dropping f bombs, and uh, you know, we're in a little club here because you know I would never drop an f bomb. Yeah. And, and you know, when you're a kid or when you're starting out in the business, you, you that might work, but. After a while, it just gets, it's so obvious. But yeah. they're, they're all good. And Paul Martin, you mentioned, was interesting. Like, you wanted to like him so much. And he, I remember he told us a story one time when we were shooting at his firm. It was a great story. It was really funny. And it was a story about how when he was a young man, and of course, Paul Martin Sr. was his father, mm-hmm. senior cabinet minister, destined to be prime minister and stuff. And Paul Jr. said, we're going to this conservative event me and a couple of other young liberals and paul senior said don't you go to that don't and he's like dad i'm going he said don't you cause any trouble i don't need this you know he's starting his leadership bit or something anyway paul goes him and his buddy start chanting something this happens that happens he gets arrested the three of them get arrested he has to call his father and say i'm in jail anyway tells his story it's a great story i said you've got to tell that story on on camera and we tried 15 times. We never got the story. He tried. He, just, he couldn't tell the story when the camera was rolling, which is pretty important when you're in that business. It is. In my, my experience with politicians, they always want to tell you how much they love Tim Hortons within the first minute. Which is always, I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, Rick, it's funny you mentioned Keith Spicer off the beginning, because of course he just passed away as well, right? And mm-hmm. it was very much a moment in time when he set out on this commission to discover what it meant to be Canadian in the aftermath of, I guess it was in the aftermath of Meech Lake or Charlottetown or one of them. Uh, and then you sort of thought of the same thing. I'm going to crisscross the country and find out what it means to be Canadian. And wow, you saw the whole country. So no one is better placed to understand what that might mean. But I guess it's a very, it's a, it's an elusive, it's an elusive thing to describe what exactly. I I start the book, as you know, by saying that my goal when I started the show was to define what it means to be a Canadian. But then I quickly follow up and say, not only is that a wildly pretentious way to start a book, but it is a question that has beguiled us since day one. And I do point out that Keith Spicer actually went around the country. And I was a kid then, what, well, 15 or 16, I think. Or maybe yeah, same 18. here. Yep. Yeah, I remember, I remember thinking, 
Like, how weird. We need to have a royal commission, like, go around and ask people what it means to be a Canadian. And plus, I thought, God, his job, that must be so dull, listening to, like, people give their version of Canada. But it just struck me as weird that what kind of country asks that question? Because you know Americans, they don't. You know, they got mom, the flag, and apple pie, and then they, that's it. Whereas we just don't have that pat answer. And then if you do get Canadians in a room and ask them what it means to be a Canadian, they start talking about how we're not like Americans, which is absurd. So I thought I'd answer the question. and uh, But I was also cocky enough to think, you know, I'm going to go out there. It'll take me two or three years, which is fine, because I want to get at least two or three years out of this show. And after 15 years, I was no closer to a quest to the answer to that question. In fact, I'm probably further away now than I ever was. But it was fun trying. And I came up with there's certain common denominators that I write about in the book and certain things, big takeaways. Everywhere I went, almost every single thing I did was there were like volunteers. There were like people in the community driving the thing. And I know people go, volunteers drive Canada. Well, they literally do. And then every athlete I met, they devoted a huge portion of their life to growing their sport. Everyone who did something obscure, whatever their passion was, whether it was climbing up the sides of ice on mountains or whatever, they too were committed to growing their sport or growing their hobby. There was a lot of giving back and incredible examples of of of, of generosity everywhere I went. And um, that was nice. It was nice to focus on the similarities that you see from region to region, because God knows we got so many differences. It can fill... 15 books if you wanted to focus on the differences yeah it always i always think of canadians as being as you've pointed out a people who in general want to leave the place better than they found it and also the kind of people that would call a royal commission to figure out what it means to be canadian yeah. <laughs> because that's that's so canadian and i guess yeah i mean that that's ultimately uh, when you think about those years you just i mean the ability to see so much of this country and the way you saw it so few people have ever had that privilege and it must really feel like you got to see just something oh, like anytime really... someone mentions a, you know the pumpkin festival in whatever town you yeah. i've been there i've been there yeah, there's very few people who get to do it. Uh, a lot of entertainers get to do it. I think that, uh, you know, prime ministers would be uh, well-suited to call up the lead singer of the Arkells on occasion versus just talk to their cabinet or caucus members because people like that don't stop. They're constantly on the road in Canada. And they know what's going on in Saskatchewan because... And they know people from Saskatchewan. They have friends in Saskatchewan. And say with New Brunswick or wherever. Uh, it, it gives it, and very few people, very few people can do it because it's so expensive to travel in this country. It's easy to go, oh, you should explore your own country. Well, uh, you know, if you live in Halifax, it's cheaper to go to Paris than to fly to Calgary. And if you live in Calgary, you go to Palm Springs at the drop of a hat. But Halifax is like three times the amount. It's uh it, it's it's a tricky nut to crack, but it's a great privilege to be able to travel like we did. Sometimes we'd take off and land six times in the run of a week. It was wild. And I I was, uh, for 15 years, I'd be like a regular at a coffee shop that's not even in my province. Right. But I'd just be in that town enough, staying in that hotel. Yeah, it was a great, it was a great life and a very unique one, that's for sure. Well, Rick, as always, uh, congratulations on the book. I, I recommend listeners read through. There's there's a lot about. There's a lot more to it than we've talked about. So, thanks so much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This headline is such a head scratcher.
that you have to wonder what they were thinking, right? You always, sometimes you, think, you look at the way bureaucracies spend money and you think, what were you thinking? So get this one. Um, this could be right out of a satirical magazine. It's not. Ottawa paid nearly $670,000 to a consultant for advice on, cons on cutting consultant costs. So they spent money on consultants to tell them how to save money on consultants. And if there's not a more Ottawa headline than that one, then I don't know what it is. Um, the Department of Natural Resources specifically dropped 670K, just about, on consultants to tell them how to stop spending so much money on consultants. This was according to uh, figures tabled for the 2022-2023 fiscal year on federal spending. Um, now, of course, it's it's been going up, right? We all know that uh, that Ottawa spent, I mean, it's been in the news recently, I think $15.7 billion on professional and special services last year. And that, that category includes everything, like IT and management consultants and everything. It's just about everyone they bring in from the outside to help them out with things they can't do internally. And that's a huge increase. It's an 88% increase over outsourcing levels back in 2015, 2016, uh, when Ottawa spent about $8.3 billion. And of course, the Liberals in 2015 promised to cut back on the use of external consultants. Instead, it's just absolutely skyrocketed. Now, COVID was a part of that, right? A lot of money was spent on outside help during COVID. But overall, there's a trend line there, and it's not a good one. This all comes as the Treasury Board is moving to save about $15 billion over five years from existing spending plans right across government. And one of the areas they've been targeting, because they don't want to cut the civil service, they're targeting stuff like consultants instead. And here's how Anita Anand put it back in late August about how eager different departments were to help her out on this. They're very receptive to ensuring that we are managing the government's finances, which is ultimately taxpayer dollars, prudently, efficiently, and effectively. Uh, indeed. <laughs> indeed, it's taxpayer dollars. Uh, now, this deal with natural resources and KPMG seems to have predated this move. It goes back to July 2022, I believe, and it was to, quote, produce analysis on cost-saving opportunities, specifically in IT and real property. So basically, they hired consultants to tell them how to save money, uh, to tell them how to save money on consultants, amongst other things. Now, the reason this came to light was thanks to NDP MP Gord Johns, who specifically asked the government about contracts awarded to outside firms to help identify spending cuts. And of course, who better to talk about this than Gord Johns? He's the NDP MP for Courtney Alberti and a member of the Government Operations Committee, which is holding extensive hearings into the growth of exactly this kind of stuff, federal outsourcing. Uh, Gord Johns, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, this is one of those headlines that uh, that just has people scratching their head, right? I suppose that's what you were thinking of when you asked that question. Are you spending money on consultants to figure out how not to spend money on consultants, essentially? Yeah, exactly. You know, we put forward, I put forward an order paper question, which is where an MP can ask the government a direct question and the government has to answer it and, and be honest in their answer. And I asked the government what departments were doing to cut the 3% of the, the spending that was directed to them by the president of the Treasury Board, Minister Anand, and asked of them a, a few months ago. Biggest takeaway uh, of the order paper question is that the natural resources and that department spent almost $700,000 on outsourcing their plan to cut spending to KPMG. <laughs> and I shouldn't be laughing because people are struggling right now. And, and this is not a time for government to be wasting money. But it's absolutely absurd that in that department, as a way of cutting spending, they spent even more money on outsourcing 
it's just unbelievable. It just it just speaks to the greater pattern here of how government has become so reliant on outsourcing. And uh, just, you know, when we look at the growth of outsourcing since 2010, it is absolutely skyrocketed and it's out of control to the point where they can't even think for themselves. That's why I put forward and been pushing for a greater look at all outsourcing. Well beyond, you know, what you hear in the news and that's around ArriveCan, there is a lot bigger uh, amounts of spending and wasteful amounts. And it's one of the people we had testify committee, Amanda Clark. She's a, a policy professional and she's a, a professor at Carleton University. She's an expert in public policy. She just basically said this is, they've created a shadow government basically within the public service. And uh, that's how reliant it's become. And I'm not saying it's a, it, it is that, but the amount of money being spent on outsourcing, we're at over $15 billion now. And these are for-profit companies. So somebody's making profit, unlike public service and public servants, which are serving you know Canadians, and they're not a for-profit business. So as you can imagine, you're a consulting company. Your goal is to create more work for your consulting company. They did a really good job when it comes to the Department of Natural Resources. I'll say that, uh, you know, when it turns to KPMG, their strategy is working. 670 grand. Uh, I I gather the the Minister Wilkinson, who's new to that portfolio uh, since this was done, sort of came out with a bit of an explanation today saying this had been done beforehand, uh, before that these cuts from Treasury Board had been asked for, at least these savings had been asked for by Treasury Board. Still, it highlights the problem, right? You want to cut money and you go out and spend something, spend the money on something you, you're looking to cut. And, and it just seems so. Do you have any insight when you ask these questions of MPs and other experts? Do you have any insight as to why sort of the reflex reaction when these things have to be done is to go to consultants? Because our impression, and I think this is the case, the bureaucracy has swelled in the past 10 years, 15 years as well. So how come we're going out and hiring, spending money on others to get advice that we could have, I suppose, in-house? Well, that's a good question. I mean, we know, it, you know, when under the Harper government, they started cutting the public service. And we had Michael Wernick, who was the Privy Council clerk. He understood the whole process. And he cited that that, that there was cuts to senior public servants. There was cuts to training and leadership, critical investments. He says this is what all governments do when it comes to austerity. And it's led to this crisis. So there's been a huge vacuum when it comes to leadership and, you know, fostering in that leadership in terms of, uh, you know, supporting those people in the public service to, to move up the totem pole and in terms of building um, really good uh, skill set. I imagine um, that. Yeah, I imagine some but, of them are working as as consultants. I mean, that's I'm what imagining happens, right? a lot of they, them are. In fact, uh, a committee we even had one of the the, the former uh, CBSA, uh, uh, the head of the CBSA, is now working for PricewaterhouseCoopers. So, I, I mean, this is something that is very concerning, and uh, and uh, people have every right to ask a lot of questions when they're seeing people jump ship and they go to a big consulting firm like and I'll give you an example Pricewaterhouse Coopers under the Harper government had 9.8 million dollars in consulting they went up to 44 million dollars before the Harper government was done and that jumped to 93 million under uh, the Trudeau government and that's a couple of years ago so i mean we've seen it grow almost tenfold in a decade and the reliance on you know these outsourcing you know companies 
it's just it's become systemic between the conservative and liberals. It has to stop. You know, we need to invest in the public service who are more than capable of doing their jobs and adapting to new demands from the Canadian public. And we have to do everything we can to support them and, and the good paying union jobs that the government of Canada can give them. And and when we have, you know, huge contracts to profit driven driven firms, it, it, it isolates a huge amount of taxpayer dollars into the, the hands of just a, a few rich CEOs, let's face it. And it undermines the work of our public service and only helps people who don't have the best interests of Canadians in mind. And, you know, these companies aren't accountable to the Canadian public where the public service is. So giving money to a management firm that allows them to line their pockets while delivering minimal services to Canadians, often just a, a PowerPoint presentation filled with suggestions to the minister these could be dollars the government is investing in public service jobs. We have skilled people who can assess department performance within this government and find efficiencies and make changes without spending this money. Yeah, I should point out that the NDP governments, when they're in charge, kind of do the same thing. And NDP NDP staffers well, and, and provincially end up in consultancies as well. It's sort of an endemic problem within government. Gord, you've also been looking into this ArriveCan app. And I think what, what's really interesting about that is that it's not just big consultancies that are often used by governments of all stripes. Uh, but it, it it's just this sort of seems to be this endemic spending of money on services that the government, you would think, doesn't really need. So middle people, like with the ArriveCan app, sort of middle companies taking all kinds of money to go and find other people. It just seems like there's a lot of money going out the door that doesn't need to be. Well, when as we're diving in and learning how bad the situation really is and how long this has been happening, it's endemic in government uh, and how these consulting companies have designed their whole program. I mean, I, I almost... Uh, I asked one consulting company, is it that you go forward and ask your client first, uh, you'd start off with, uh, we'll fix it. Oh, what's the problem? Right. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, because they seem to be experts in everything when that's not reality. And you know, we looked at GC Strategies, one of the companies that, uh, you know, has been involved with the ArriveCan. Uh, this is a company, a two-person company that's done over $50 million in business with Canada. They don't have an office. They have no staff. They're an IT specialist company that have no expertise in IT. Right. And so they make is- a commission between 15 and 30% on all their contracts. So let, let's just say on the, on the, on, on, on the low, they got, they made seven and a half million dollars over the last few years between right. the two of them. Is it just because the procurement process is complicated? So you end up with companies who know how to, who know how to do the procurement. In other words, they know how to get hired by the government. And therefore that's where the money is. It's the system that's, that's, that's problematic as well. Absolutely. One of the public servants identified one of the subcontractors and, and said, uh, let him do his magic. Well, the magic is that he understands the system or, or the comp- these companies understand the system and uh, they know how to navigate it. And, you know, now we're finding out, you know, through testimony at committee, one of the, the owners of these companies admitted to altering a, a resume this this individual was subcontracting from a company and now is subbing out on top of that to another company, uh, everybody making their cut. And they cited that they had, um, one person had said that they worked two months for Deloitte. And in fact, they put on the resume when they submitted up the chain that it was 52 months. The one person had cited, the, the other partner in this sub-subcontracting gig had cited that they had only worked seven years as a, as owning a company and they, that was inflated to 12 years so that they could meet the requirements the criteria, of right? being eligible 
for the contract for the task authorization. So this is the kind of stuff that we're hearing about at committee and it yeah. needs to stop. How it do you rein it? Stop How now. do you rein it? It seems like it's a well-oiled machine, Gord. How do you rein it back in? Well, this is what we're trying to do. And this is why I put forward order paper questions like this is to expose government and how ridiculous and out of control it is so that we can, you know, bring that to the attention of the Canadian public and put pressure on the government to stop the madness. And uh, that's exactly what we did when we put forward an order paper question uh, last year that identified the big six outsourcing companies. We know the Conservatives were trying to uncover some scandal tying Justin Trudeau to McKinsey, Mm -hmm. when in fact McKinsey had just as much ties to uh, the Harper government. It gave us an opportunity to look at all the big six, you know, highly paid outsourcing uh, firms that are built with highly paid consultants that are making lots of money on the public service. And we unearthed that there was, you know, large, large amounts of money going to companies like Deloitte, which dwarfed KPMG. I mean, Deloitte got $173 million in 2021 and, uh, and, and they were doing about 28 million back in 2010. So, I mean, these, these are companies and consulting firms that are literally building framework infrastructure uh, to respond to government at this point. The billion dollar question here is, do you ever get a proper response as to why? Why is it that so many departments feel the need to go out and hire consultants when they have their own staff to do it? Do they not trust them? Do they do they not have the bandwidth to do it? Is it is it is that the issue? Well, I think Michael Wernick, who's the former Privy Council, uh, the head of the Privy Council, I mean, mm-hmm. was really clear in that he cited that the cuts under the Harper government in leadership, in training, and the cuts to the public services have cost us. So we know when we cut you know, in the public service that it's going to cost us money on the outside because either there's a lack of expertise or there's situations where there's a surge of demand. Let, let's face it, COVID-19 would have been a situation where we, we we relied on all the support we could get to get through it. Gord John, sounds like you have a lot of work left to do. Thank you so much. Yeah, we do have a lot of work to do and we won't stop until this is fixed. I can assure you of that. <laughs> designed them to be trusted with our homes, with our way of life, with our world. But did we design them to be trusted? My robots don't kill people. That thing threw somebody out of a window. Is that registering with you? A robot cannot harm a human being. And you trust them if you want to. We look to robots for protection. Imagine the loss of all that we've gained because of an irrational paranoia. A snippet from the 2004 movie I, Robot there, of course. Science fiction's always really formed the way we think about robots or sort of human-like robots, right? That, that, of course, was based on a collection of short stories by the legendary sci-fi writer Isaac Asimov, published in various magazines before being compiled in a book of the same name in 1950. It really explored the relationship with robots through the narration of a chief robo-psychologist at U.S. Robots and Mechanical Men, Inc., the major manufacturer, fictional manufacturer of robots in that book written more than well, more than 70 years ago. It was all very much fiction at the time, but here we are in the 21st century where that uh, 
book was set or where those stories were set. And while not quite as it was imagined by Asimov more than 70 years ago, we are seeing some pretty remarkable advances in robot and AI innovation. One company in the field is BC's Sanctuary AI, and they just made Time Magazine's list of top inventions for 2023 for their sixth generation general purpose robot called Phoenix. The company's mission is to create the world's first human-like intelligence uh, in general purpose robots. So they're, uh, in, in other words, they create these robots that are both intelligent in form and human-like, human-like intelligent in form and intelligent. So they stand about five foot seven, which is pretty amazing. And they weigh about 155 pounds and it's quite uh, human looking. It's specifically designed to perform work tasks. Here's how they describe it. At Sanctuary, we're on a mission to build the world's first human-like intelligence in general-purpose robots that will help us all expand our horizons and open up whole new worlds of opportunity. In the near term, Sanctuary technology will create new jobs, bring new hope and opportunities to those who might be less capable of physical work, and help address the labor shortage. So that's not science fiction. So much of what we think about robots in this way is sort of based on science fiction. This is very much real. So we thought we'd get some more details on this specific innovation and where robots like it are headed more generally. To help us do that is Jordy Rose. He's the co-founder and CEO of Sanctuary AI. Thank you for your time tonight. Of course. Thanks for well, having me. Congratulations. This is a this is a big deal for Phoenix, I guess. What in a, tell me it's tell me what it does because it's uh it's quite the project. Yeah, it's a, it's a little nonlinear story because you see a robot, but the robot's really there to collect experience. So the, at Sanctuary, the, the mission is to try to be the first to create human-like general intelligence, um, a software system that has a mind, is a mind kind of like ours. And uh, the thesis of the company is that in order for an AI to truly understand the world, it needs to experience it like we do. And that means being embedded in the world, being in the world, uh, having the sense of the world, you know, being able to see it, touch it, um, hear it, and so on. And then being able to act on the world in the same way as a person. So the, the, the robot that you see, the Phoenix system, is in some ways a, uh, a means to an end. It, the the company is not really about robots. It's about the use of robots to, to, uh, to provide AI a way to understand the world. Right. So in this sense, you, you, I mean, literally, like we, we learn about text-based AI systems, this also has to learn by, it has to learn, right? Yeah. So it, uh, the text-based AI systems that have become proliferated recently, they live in a world where there's nothing but words, um, certain extent images as well, but words and images are not, are not the world. The world is the world that everyone knows and, and you know, experiences every moment of their lives. Uh, they're very different. And so AIs that are trained on words and images learn about words and images, but words and images are not the world. And so the type of intelligence that is developed under those other models is very alien. It, it kind of looks a little bit like us from certain perspectives, but it's not really like us at all. An AI that is like us has to consume data in the same way we do, which is the uh, experiencing of the world. So if you, if you were to say, look around you at the objects that might be in front of you, like a steering wheel or a or a cup or a phone, when you pick something like that up, there's a whole complicated uh, business that happens where the, your senses fire and your motor, your motors fire, your, your muscles. And that kind of symphony of all of those things happening at once is what we call experience or conscious first person experience. 
So the, the robots like what Sanctuary builds are designed to be able to record that experience of being in the world and doing things. And that experience becomes the kind of data that you use to train the AI models that are, are, are attempting to learn what it's like to be a person. And our thesis is that learning what it's like to be a person is required in order to create AI that understands the world the same way we do. A concrete example of this, of where where would that be put into practice and what would the AI be, what would the Phoenix be learning to do, for instance? Well, the ultimate objective is to have it learn to understand the world the same way we do and build truly human-like intelligence in machines, which has not yet been done. And in fact, we're quite far from it. And ultimately, be able to create software systems that replicate not only the capabilities of the human mind, like being able to do work, but also some of the more currently mysterious features of the mind, like what is it to be conscious? What is this thing we call first-person experience? Um, Those are likely questions that at least you have to confront when you're doing something like this. In terms of like the practical side of this, the types of tasks that you ask a robot to learn the world about is up to you as an engineer, scientist. And most people, when they do this sort of thing, they use the kinds of tasks that are um, not commercial tasks, like moving blocks from place to place and things like this. Kind of the sorts of things that you'd expect like a kindergarten student to um, to be able to do or learn about the world doing. Uh, but our thesis is a little different, is that we, we combine those kinds of things with real world uh, applications. And the reason why we're able to do that, no one else in the world can. I'd just like to make this point is that Sanctuary as a Canadian company is, the, is leading by far in the kinds of things that we're talking about. The reason that we were able to do uh, real world tasks is the, the systems that we build, the robots, the physical robots, are much more capable than any other robot that's ever been built at doing work. And the reason for that is that the we have built hands that are as close to the human hand as you can build with the technologies of the day. And most work is delivered by using your hands. Um, Robots have traditionally not been able to uh, manipulate the world physically the same way a person can because they've been restricted to using grippers or suction cups or things of this sort. Uh, Building hands is quite difficult, but we've been able to, to do it in a way that no one else has been able to do. Right. I gather there was a pilot project. Uh, Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so we have a a diverse set of customers doing tasks across multiple different industries. We're primarily focused on manufacturing, but the first one we did a public deploy on was actually in a retail setting in the the Canadian tire uh, brands and sport check and marks. The uh, retail environment is a very interesting one for general intelligence because they're sort of a microcosm of the, of the human experience, you know, like a, a, a big box store has millions of different things in it, all designed for consumption and use by people. It's got the kinds of environments that people are used to being in. It's got a lot of people themselves. So there's a social thing. So being in one of those environments is actually uh, an exceedingly difficult thing to build a robot that acts like a person in, but that pressure is uh, the double-edged sword is that even though it's hard um, you learn an awful lot by doing it. So our first deployments were within retail environments. Right. Multisensory, obviously, in a retail environment. You're, you're, you're taking a lot of cues in that kind of an environment that a robot might know to take uh, because we do it quite naturally, right? Yeah. So the robots are designed to be able to have the same kind of senses people do, like vision, hearing, touch. So the, the way to think about the systems we build is don't really think about them as technology, even though they are. They're designed to be mimics of a human experience. So we, uh, we try our best to be able to build these systems in such a way that the way you interact with them, the way that you understand them, the, what you expect them to be able to do 
is essentially the same as a, say a new trainee that comes into the store. So if I, if I was like in my last year of high school and I was to come in and work at Marks or sport check, you know, I'd be given a list of instructions of things to do and not to do my job well. And then I would consume that and I do the best job I can. That's what our robots do is that they understand the instructions that they're given and they attempt to do the work as best they can. Right. What kind of work were they doing? If you can, if you can talk about, it, I guess people might be, I'm, I haven't seen one. Uh, I, I go to both Marks and sports tech. I just haven't had a chance to see one yet. What kind of tasks would they be performing at this stage of the game? So we, uh, we did a, an, a, an overview of all of the tasks that were performed in both stores. So by everybody in the store, this is like every single thing that is done over the entire employee base. And we were able to do about 40% of those tasks. And there was a, roughly in terms of numbers, about 200 different tasks. So there's a, at the front of the store, there's things like obvious things that you'd expect a system like this to be able to do, which is like greeting people, providing people information, discussing, you know, letting them, you know, help find what they're looking for and so on kind of things you expect like a greeter person to do. And on the back, back end, uh, doing some more physical labor, like a depalletization, which is taking things off the trucks uh, and putting it in specific places on shelves, you know, in boxes, taking things out of boxes, uh, that sort of thing. So everything in between and everything in between. Tell me a bit of because there, there is a philosophy behind this as well, uh, because, of course, people always worry about robots taking their jobs. You've been talking about it for a long time, right? But you see a void here that this innovation could help with. Yeah. So the um, uh, when we first started the project about six years ago, the general consensus or feeling was that there was this uh, balance you had to play between automation and, and jobs. Uh, but that's largely gone away because there's an understanding that the um, birth rates are plummeting globally. And uh, they're below replacement in the Western world, and they have been for about 60 years now in, in the U.S. and Canada. And uh, what this means is that the, the population changes its nature from having many, many more old pe- having many more people who are over a certain age. So the population inverts. There aren't enough young people to do all the work. And our customers are acutely aware of this. And I think that this is an underappreciated problem because things like this kind of sneak up on you. You know, a population changes happen over many generations. And so it's not clear when you're, you know, in, in the middle of it that it's happening. It's kind of even worse than global warming in that mm-hmm. sense is that it, uh, it happens on a timescale that's long enough so you don't really notice until, you know, something calamitous has happened. So the thesis behind the use of this type of technology for work and I should just be very clear that the thing that we're building is is intended to be a general intelligence, a thing like us. The the use of this technology to do work intersects with this uh, globally crashing birth rates because in the future, and even to a certain extent today, there just won't be enough people to do all the work that needs to be done. And in order to do real work of significant value in the world as a robot, you need uh, transformative change. The kinds of robots we have now can't even in principle, do the things that people can do. But the sort of thing that Sanctuary is is leading now the world on are types of machines that actually can do the work that people do. And it's required to have general intelligence in order to do that. Yeah. I interviewed someone in Singapore not long ago, and this is a very different kind of uh, innovation, but uh, there were no baristas in Singapore. There's no one to no one to make anyone coffee. So they had to build a machine to do it, uh, which speaks to sort of the idea of the plummeting <clears throat> workforce and so on. I, I suppose the hardest part about this then is acclimatizing the rest of us to it. It hasn't been an issue so far. We, when we did our initial deploy, we had a um, uh, market research firm come in and do uh, investigation of the reaction of people to the technology. And we had a 100% score on uh, whether you would recommend the experience to others, which is very unusual for any technology. 
you know, we, we, we're, we, we, we grow up in, in a world of science fiction and movies and books where there are robots who work together with people. And there's this idea that people have that that should be true. And uh, when you see one in reality, it changes your world. When people meet Phoenix, they're never the same again because they've understood that something that they just thought was science fiction is now an actual thing that's in the world. How far off are we then from, from being more together, so to speak, with, with, with this kind of innovation? Well, I don't see uh, that we're not already. I think we're mm-hmm. already there. I think that the, there are some questions about how the world will react to the, the kind of the development of super intelligence, you know, the, the uh, kinds of minds that are transcend our capabilities um, in many dimensions. I think it's a lot of concerns about what the world looks like in that instance. I don't share those concerns myself. I think that the uh, the path forward to having you know flourishing in a very synergistic way with this technology that we're building is pretty clear. Um, I don't buy into the horror science fantasy threads right. that you know people tell stories about. I don't think any of those things aren't true. I think it's important for people to realize that the the pictures that are painted in the movies and in Black Mirror and all these is they're just fantasies. They're not made. They're just they're not connected to reality. The reality is that we can work together with this type of technology to do things that we couldn't do ourselves. This type of technology is going to very quickly go from being the sorts of things that power robots inside retail and manufacturing to being able to solve problems we simply can't, the kinds of problems we desperately need solved. What next for, this is sixth generation, I gather, what next for this particular project, if, if, as much as you can talk about it? Well, we continually make the uh, evolve the systems to make them better. Every two weeks, the systems get smarter and that they receive new software updates that includes learnings over the fleet. So as the fleet learns new things, every robot learns the things that the other robots learned. So they get to continually get smarter. That, that's probably the most important aspect of this. On the physical side, the, the bodies of the robots sometimes evolve, but on a slower timescale, probably about once a year, we do another major revision. Um, one of the major revisions that we're undergoing now is going from mostly focused on dexterous manipulation, the upper body part of the robot, to building the full robot, which includes legs and the ability to walk around and all that. Yeah. And uh, just the humanness of it, the, the, the idea that it looks a lot like it feels very human, I suppose, is, is not not accidental. No. In fact, that was one of the main design thrusts that we had was that we wanted the system to be wanted it to look endearing and capable. And both those two things sometimes pull against each other. You know, you get of robots, you can imagine a lot of them are endearing, you know, the Pixar candlestick and Wally and but then you have another type of robot that looks very capable, like Chappie or the Terminator. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to get a, a, a design that has both features. So we tried very hard to uh, to design the robot to have that kind of endearing uh, Pixar quality, but also look like a real machine that can do work. Well, Jordi, thank you so much for sharing uh, what you've been working on. I appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. What if I were to tell you that in 2007, a new addictive drug came out and it took the world by storm. In less than 15 years, over half of the world's population was using this drug daily. It was causing a rise in depression, anxiety, and suicide in all age ranges, but especially in young girls. And it was accounting for 3,000 traffic deaths per year in the United States from impaired driving. If this were happening, wouldn't there be an outrage? Wouldn't the government and society as a whole be trying to fix this? Wouldn't we be drafting class action lawsuits and demanding justice? Well, 
check your pockets. Because I'm guessing you have this drug on you right now. And it's your smartphone. A TED Talk there by Dr. Justin Romano on smartphone addiction. There are a lot of TED Talks, by the way, that tackle that topic. All of them interesting. It's one that I think just about everyone can relate to. But well, we have a pretty good idea of how many people have smartphones and how much screen time they're using. We haven't had much of an idea about just how many people show real signs of being addicted to them. Uh, that is until now. A new global study carried out right here in Canada is digging into that topic and has come up with some pretty sobering numbers. It was published today in the International Journal of Mental Health and Addiction. It surveyed some 50,000 people uh, between the ages of 18 to 90, so right across the spectrum, to get a better handle on their smartphone use and their relationship more particularly, their relationship with the device. It finds that one-third of people around the world surveyed, one-third of people around the world may, surveyed, may be at high risk for smartphone addiction. And there are some distinct groups that really did stand out in the study as being more prone than others. The yardstick on this one is when a person's habitual smartphone use begins to really interfere negatively with their life like an addiction, right? That's what it is. Uh, joining me now with more on the study, what it means and what the impacts have been is Jay Olson. He's a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga. He was also the lead researcher on this very broad and very large study. Jay, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is a massive study. Um, I guess, how did you go about doing it? Just the, the nuts and bolts of it, because it's a massive sample size. Yeah, sure. So um, there's a gigantic creativity study that we're running with an even more massive sample size, um, 600,000 people, basically. And so um, after they completed that study, we would just say, and by the way, we're running this other uh, smartphone addiction study, if you'd like to try that out. So we got uh, um, 50,000 people completing that. Wow, that's a huge number of people. Um, mm -hmm. What did you what were you setting out to find just to get a general idea of what smartphone use patterns are like around the world? Yeah, um, we're trying to understand kind of the global context of what we call problematic smartphone use. So smartphone use can become problematic when it starts interfering with your um, life in, in a negative way. So if it's um, interfering with your concentration or if you feel anxiety when you don't have your phone with you or if it's influencing your sleep or something like that, then we would consider that problematic. And um, there's a lot of organizations that track smartphone ownership across the world and screen time, like um, how many hours per day people use their phone across the world. Uh, but there's basically nobody tracking global problematic smartphone use, trying to look at um, how this kind of varies across um, across the countries and also trying to look at it, uh, um, how it is in huge samples across ages and genders. Right. Because of one thing, if, if you travel in, around the world, the one thing you'll notice is that people, you know, the cities may look a little different. People speak different languages, but almost everywhere you go, people have yep. their heads down. People have their heads down in their phones. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. What, did you, what did you find? Because you came up with some pretty interesting stuff. Yeah. So the most uh, kind of surprising things that we found was, uh, um, first of all, that um, across almost all the countries that, that um, we examined, women had higher problematic smartphone use than uh, men did. And, and it seemed like this, um, this gender difference was, was largest in the younger ages. And so in, in Canada, for example, 56% um, of the women um, who completed the survey that were aged 18 to 22, so basically um, university aged, um, um, would, be, would be considered at a high risk of, of problematic smartphone use. And so, and, and so the numbers were quite high and the gender differences were uh, quite consistent across the world.
Really? So right across the world, you were seeing higher numbers of potential smartphone addiction in women than in men. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and the highest numbers overall, um, we found around uh, Southeast Asia, and the lowest numbers overall we found around Europe. And so there's quite a bit of uh, uh, variation uh, across the world, kind of in overall country-level problematic smartphone use, but um, these gender differences were, were consistent across the large number of them. I suppose it's hard to figure out why that might be. I mean, I know in parts of, of Southeast Asia, data plans are, are relatively inexpensive compared to salaries, for instance. So it might be the mm -hmm. easiest way to spend time. But did you figure out any why there might be some of those differences going on? Yeah. So um, uh, one of the more psychological variables that, uh, that we looked at has to do with how strict the social norms are in, in different countries. And um, in, in some countries, there's um, strict social norms that determine like how often you should stay in contact with friends and family. And, uh, and in some countries, like in Europe, these are, are quite loose. And so um, we thought that at, at least part of these country-level differences were driven by differences in social norms, which influences how often um, you should socialize with friends and family, um, which then affects how often you do that through your phone. Right. So, so in other words, the, people aren't necessarily spending more time playing solitaire on their phone. They might be chatting to an uncle or talking to a friend or any number of things. Like, it's just that the chattiness in some ways. Yeah, this might be the the, the chattiness, but the um, unfortunate thing that we found was that uh, the uh, negative effects from the phone were also higher in, in these countries. And so it, it's not just that they were using their phones for kind of um, pro-social reasons, uh, chatting with friends and family. It's that um, uh, respondents from um, some countries also reported having more negative effects uh, from that. And right. so it, it seems like those might go hand in hand. We know that often um, the more social functions of the phone are, are the ones that uh, promote habits more. And some of these can be uh, uh, negative habits or some of these, these can go too far and then lead to these negative effects. Right. So I suppose in that sense, being cut off from your phone would be like being cut off from your lifeline. It'd be like a lifeline, yeah. right? Yeah. And then therefore the anxiety, the stress and the, and the addiction. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. what we're thinking. How did, uh, and you mentioned that Canada ranked it. How do we rank globally? How does Canada fit into the global picture of smartphone addiction? So there were um, 41 countries that we examined more closely. These were the ones that, that we had the um, largest sample sizes for, at least 100 um, across these 41 countries. And um, Canada ranked right in the middle of these. And, and so and so that was kind of surprising for us because um, some of the previous research that uh, that we did, it looked like Canada had higher numbers. But um, once we had kind of this more global sample, we realized that um, we're, we're kind of right in the middle. And, uh, and so some of these um, findings become even even more surprising. Like if, if we think of 56 um, percent of the um, student aged uh, female respondents um, would be rated as like having a high risk of problematic smartphone use. And if Canada is right in the middle, then that means that all the, all the countries above would probably have um, higher rates for that particular demographic. Interesting. I guess we always do kind of look internally at these things and think, okay, it must be a huge problem here compared to other places. And then when you get that big a sample size, because mm -hmm. you were just comparing Canada to, say, Northern Europe, maybe we do look like a place where we're more addicted to our smartphones. But compared to somewhere in Southeast Asia, maybe not, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why we kind of wanted this uh, um, um, survey so that we can see things in this global context. And, uh, and, uh, and so it's helpful for researchers to know, um, yeah, how their country is doing uh, uh, relatively, but also potentially for policymakers too. If they see that their country's near the top, they can start thinking, well, these rates are rising, maybe, um, maybe there should be some kind of top-down interventions involved, for example.
when you found, of course, that, that younger women, 18 to 22, had a 50, 56% of the respondents seemed to have a, a proclivity towards smartphone addiction. Did you find anything on the other side that was counterintuitive, something that on the on the lower end that, that may have gone against what you thought you might find? Um, on, on the lower end, things were, were pretty much as expected. So um, we expected that men would have uh, ha have lower rates. And so in, in that same kind of uh, um, age group we saw, I think it was about um, a, a third of men um, uh, had a high risk of problematic smartphone use there. And then um, as, as the ages went higher, we surveyed people um, aged 18 to 90. Um, we saw this very consistent drop. And this, uh, and this drop uh, by age was... Uh, I'm very consistent across across these countries. Um, there were some countries that seemed to show a, an increase in problematic smartphone use with age, um, um, but those ones we kind of just flagged as like things that we should look in, into into the future. Um, we didn't have giant sample sizes for those, so we couldn't make as robust conclusions about that. I guess it makes some sense that uh, that the younger you are, the quicker you are to adapt to technology. The more that that technology is available it's only on your phone, uh, the more mm -hmm. you're going to use your phone. It makes, and I suppose, it makes yeah. it's logical in that sense. Uh, Jay, you, you've looked into this in the past. I don't think it was part of this study, but you have looked in to the past in the past at how ways we can tackle this. And one of the things I found really interesting is don't incentivize your smartphone use, right? I mean, uh, for instance, nudges <laughs> nudges would be one of the ways to take yourself off your phone a bit. Yeah. Uh, um, um, so this was a, a study that we did where we were looking at um, what could be called kind of self nudges. So like these kind of um, self led strategies that you can do that would potentially re reduce your smartphone use. And, um, uh, and, and we had 120 participants and, and we gave them this intervention where um, they would choose which strategies to follow. So these were some things like um, reducing the number of notifications on your phone. So going through the notifications and, and um, um, unchecking notifications for all the apps that you don't really need them for. So keeping them on for like messages or um, phone calls, but then shutting them off for um, maybe some of the the social media apps that you don't uh, I, I check as often and um, um, things like making the screen grayscale. Um, mm -hmm. um, so it looks a little bit less, less pretty to look at and also a little bit more challenging to use and um, things like keeping the phone outside of the bedroom at, at night uh, um, so that you're not tempted to um, use it right before bed or kind of wake up in the middle of, of, of the night and, and use it. And, uh, and so we had participants uh, um, follow a, a range of these and, and, and compared to people in the control group, we found that people following these kinds of strategies uh, reduced their problematic smartphone use and also reduced their, their screen time. So we showed that um, following a mix of strategies that you kind of choose yourself can be uh, um, effective to uh, reduce your phone use. Right. To, to, coin, to coin a corporate term, set yourself up for success, right? I mean, that's yeah. that sort of... Um, ironically, I, it was thanks to a news alert that I found you. So I could, sometimes they're good, right? Sometimes you need them. Uh, mm -hmm. Is there is there, based on the studies that you've done, including this one, is, there must be a concern out there that, that our smartphone use is, is drifting into something problematic, if it hasn't already. I mean, it's, it's been going in one direction, I think, for many years now. The more and more engaging smartphones get, the more we're engaged with them. Uh, but the, clearly, mm -hmm. there's a concern here from, from a public health standpoint. Yeah, definitely. So um, the proliferation of smartphones is, is kind of like a, a, a natural experiment that we don't really know the consequences of. And so um, we know that that technology is, is often very useful. It can make things a lot more convenient. You get news alerts on your phone and that kind of thing. Um, but the challenge is sometimes it has these long-term negative effects that you can only kind of see um, once they've been around for, for quite a while. 
And so, and so we know among um, um, younger people, for example, across the world, they're generally exercising less, they're sleeping less, they're having less um, in-person socializing. And um, it seems like at least uh, part of these decreases is, is probably uh, from the phone. And, um, and kind of similarly, we've seen increases in things like loneliness, depression, and anxiety. And so the big question in the field right now is um, how how much of, of these changes is due to the smartphone? We know that it's above zero. Some researchers claim that it's a very small amount. Some researchers claim that it's a massive amount. And that's kind of uh, uh, the big unknown. So we kind of know the direction that smartphones can have these negative effects. Um, we're looking at the magnitude now. Yeah, odd that we'd be more connected than ever before, but feel lonelier than ever before. There's certainly mm -hmm. there's certainly something to look into in that. Where to next, Jay? Where to next with this? What we're hoping with uh, uh, this kind of research is that um, is, is that policymakers or, or potentially researchers can um, use use this global context in order to develop specific interventions that that might be more relevant for for certain countries. And so if, if we know that in some countries there's like a strong need for or, or there's strong social norms to stay in close contact, then um, maybe these really strong interventions that they've tested, like reducing social media use down to 10 minutes per day, maybe those would be less effective in these countries with these strong social norms. So, so we're hoping that with this kind of global context, we can um, develop specific targeted interventions that are right for that country and for that gender and for that age group. Jay, thank you so much. Thank you. One thing I forgot to do last year, and I realized it today because this study came out, is I somehow was away for my six-month checkup and then forgot to reschedule it. So if they had asked me, I too would have answered, did you go to the dentist between December 2021 and December 2022? Actually, the answer would have been yes for that period of time. But if you asked me between uh, May of 2022 and May of 2023, the answer would be no. Um, and and you know th that was just an oversight. But of course, going to the dentist and you know is expensive if you, especially obviously if you're not insured. And so new stats came out today uh, that revealed that about a third of Canadians, 34 percent to be exact, uh, report that they did not go to a dentist between December of 2021 and December of 2022 uh, in those 12 months. Almost one quarter said this was due to cost. Uh, this is all data based off the Canadian Community Health Survey, which was released on Monday. So they're mining through that data. They collect data on Canadians 12 and order living in provinces between February 9th and December 31st of 2022. So they kind of look, it's a big survey. There's a lot in there, but one of this, one of these focused, of course, on dental care because the federal government's looking at this national dental care plan, uh, which is supposed to cover as many as 9 million Canadians by 2025, and they're starting to roll it out. And Will this make a difference? Obviously, it's good to know who's not using dental care right now and why they're not using it uh, to figure out whether this sort of plan will work and how do you target it properly. But again, uh, more than one third of Canadians report not having any dental insur dental insurance at all, which makes it really difficult for, the, for them to get the care they need. Uh, the President of the Canadian Dental Association, Dr. Heather Carr, uh, said that numbers are concerning in part due to oral care being linked, really being linked to a person's overall health. Have a listen. We hear about things like gum disease, cavities, all those things. Um, you have a much better opportunity to prevent them with early detection. 
Right. Uh, that is Dr. Heather Carr, the president of the Canadian Dental Association. We thought we'd dig into this a little bit more just to figure out what might be going on behind those numbers, what the impact can be more generally uh, on people, on your health too, uh, obviously. And, and how much will this new dental care plan that the feds are rolling out, how much will it really help? And what are some of the caveats around how it will help and, and what some of the concerns are. Uh, Dr. Noah Goma is an assistant professor in the Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry at Western University in London, and she joins me now. Dr. Goma, thank you. Thank you for having me, Ben. Uh, just your reaction to these numbers. They seem uh, they seem high, maybe not surprising, but high. They are high numbers. Um, you know, this is not new. The lack of access to dental care has been uh, an issue in Canada for uh, quite some time, a few decades now. And these numbers are um, are not surprising, uh, considering what we've known about the lack of dental insurance and lack of access to dental care. Yeah, and this, this sort of predates, I mean, it's sort of the beginning of the affordability crisis, but one can't imagine that those numbers have gotten any better uh, of late because of so many people. One would assume that one of the things people are going to cut out if they don't have money for a lot of stuff is dentists because they're expensive. That's right. And we've been expecting things like that to happen over COVID and given the inflation and the increased prices of dental care. Um, this is definitely something that we are or have been expecting to see. Some people don't like to go to the dentist, but cost must be the main driver here. Yes. So uh, as you've seen in the survey results, the um, cost has been a main driver for sure. So if people need to you know, make a choice between putting food on the table and getting a tooth filled or, or um, fixing um, a broken tooth or, or um, seeing how to, to work around dental pain, I, I think the result will be that they will choose to put food on the table for their family. Yeah. And I, I imagine that with the gig economy and so on, dental insurance isn't always as available as it might have been ages ago. Well, this is also related to, um, you know, people have been um, getting more, more and more um, involved in, in precarious working conditions that do not provide dental benefits. Um, so we've seen the rise in, in, in this as well as in relation to inflation. People have been taking on jobs that do not provide dental benefits, and that's one reason for why uh, people have had this difficulty in accessing dental care. The implications are, are pretty straightforward. We know that uh, oral health is health, right? Um, but what are the what would be the implications here if you see a growing number of the population not accessing dental care? I mean, a third a third of your population is a lot of people. Well, we we as you've just said, um, oral health is health in and of itself. Um, so having a, a tooth infection is not different from having an infection anywhere else in the body, and. Um, um, it is def does have implications to oral health, but it also has implications to general health as well, or, or other um, uh, other problems. We know dental dental health is related to uh, other conditions, particularly cardiovascular diseases and um, diabetes. For example, we know there is a bidirectional relationship um, that is biologic. So. The fact that people are unable to access dental care, at least from a screening perspective, you know, dentists do play a role as well in identifying the oral manifestations of other systemic conditions. So in addition to not being able to get their teeth treated, uh, we, we're also missing an opportunity for uh, dentists to point out um, manifestations of other health conditions. Right. And I guess one of the problems, too, is that the more you let it go, the more expensive it gets, which dissuades you from going even further. 
the thing about you know oral health is that most of it or actually all of it is um, is preventable disease so uh, the earlier you get um, get something spotted the the, the better um, and as things just go neglected and ignored it gets more problematic and as you're saying it's it gets more expensive to treat right you've done a lot of work in this as well you know about what the socioeconomic uh, profiles are and so on this does disproportionately affect a certain part of the population as well Yes, absolutely. So we know that, you know, first and foremost, individuals or families of low income um, are um, or do suffer from more oral health problems um, compared to the rest of the population. We also know that women have more oral health uh, needs or tend to want need to go to the dentist uh, more than uh, men. Uh, we've been also looking at children and adolescents in, in Ontario, and we, we see the same thing. We see that even though there are programs that uh, target children or children of low-income families, they still don't visit the dentist as often as do um, individuals of, of higher income. Right. I guess we don't know why that would be if it's uh, because, for instance, we're about to bring in a national dental care plan, which should help alleviate some of this. But again, it needs to be used, right? Uh, yes, it does. And it also depends on what is being covered in there. Uh, so this is also something important to consider that just just because something is available doesn't mean that it is being used. And maybe the services that are being covered um, may not be enough uh, to actually um, address some of the um, you know preventative and restorative dentistry needs for an individual. Right. Uh, do you think it'll make a big difference, though? I mean, we know it's going to start rolling out for uh, for for younger people as well as 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 those on fixed on lower incomes. Do you think it'll make a difference? Do you think we'll start seeing a bit of a difference from this plan in future in future surveys? So that's what we're hoping. Uh, I mean, the the income bracket for the new plan is. Um, bigger than what it is for, at least for the provincial programs here in Ontario. We're, we're hoping to see that more people are going to be able to use those uh, benefits or the or this plan. Um, that being said, we, we still need some clarity on how things will work out in terms of what services are being covered and how uh, this will come into play. Um, is this a benefit that is going to go to the patients or is it something that they will be reimbursed for? So it's there are a few details here that we still need to find out, but the hope is that with the increase or the expansion of the income bracket, that more people will have access to dental care for sure. Right. I guess the big difference between, say, the way you use your Medicare card versus having to pay up front and get the money back is, is going to be significant. Yes, absolutely. And that's what you would not hope for because, you know, um, at the end of the day, this is still a burden, uh, even if you get reimbursed. So it's still a financial burden on, on the families that we should not be burdening the most. So... Any, any advice to folks out there who might have delayed that dentist visit for a while and, uh, and and should probably go back at some point? I mean, I know it's expensive, but oftentimes it just gets more expensive in the future. And I know that's that's a tough thing to decide on. Uh, but again, oral health, sometimes we ignore it, but oral health is health, right? Uh, for sure. I mean, oral health is health, as you're mentioning. The sooner you can get preventive care, the better, for sure. But it's just um, we don't want to be blaming anyone for not being going to the not being able to go to the dentist. So, um, you know, there are programs available and we're hoping that more people will be able to uh, use them if they are made in a way that is easy for them to navigate and be able to uh, approach and use. Right. I guess this would be a wake-up call then, uh, this latest study, yet another one, that these sorts of programs, even though they, they are expensive, uh, but they're needed, right? They are needed for the health of the population, period. Absolutely, they are. 
Well, Dr. Goma, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. 